views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Ralphie, look over there. See, the line's not so long. You yeah. can go get in it. Now take Andy's hand and hold on to it. And we'll see you later, okay? Yeah, yeah, stay together. Don't get lost. Okay. Young man. Hey, kid. Just where do you think you're going? Going up to see Sam. The line ends here. It begins there. The line waiting to see Santa Claus stretched all the way back to Terre Haute. And I was at the end of it. Merry Christmas. I like Santa. Yeah. Come on, Santa. Let's face it, most of us were scoffers, but moments before zero hour, it did not pay to take chances. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, December 22nd, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, from color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to reach us as always. Merry Christmas, Robert. How Merry are you? Merry Christmas, Bob. I'm fine, <laughs> thanks. Hey, if you've never seen it, you must watch the movie A Christmas Story, from which our opening piece of life's drama was taken. One of my favorites. It is. And it's a movie that takes kind of an irreverent and contrarian view of Christmas, while at the same time kind of preserving the spirit of Christmas, wouldn't you say? Oh, yes, for sure. It's an amazing movie if you've never seen it. And in many ways, I think that movie might be a little bit like our own episode of Just Right Today. I don't know about you, but not everyone's enamored by the holiday season, the Christmas holiday season. But everyone does love having holidays, which don't officially start till this weekend. That's a bit different, which means the kids are still in school. Which means it's safe to do our chosen material today. <laughs> you know, I've never had to do more censoring or editing in preparation for any previous broadcast of this show, and I think our listeners will both understand and appreciate why. As I take a look at the limerick, one of those fields of arts and entertainment category, I guess aesthetics, you might say, that one rarely hears discussed. I've heard them referred to as the thumbnails of poetry. Isn't that interesting? Ah, that's cute. And uh, the reason for that is, of course, you know, the limerick is callous and crude. Its morals distressingly lewd. It's not worth the reading by persons of breeding. It's designed for us vulgar and rude. <laughs> so that's why we'll be looking at the limerick beginning in the second half of today's show. To make it even more fun, in addition to the traditional subjects of limericks, my chosen limerick subject matter weighed heavily, heavily towards a new category of limericks that is something new in the field. And believe it or not, that happens to be science fiction, Star Trek, and outer space. Some things that regularly uh, happen on this on this show. Well, you got no idea what's been going on aboard the Starship Enterprise. If these limericks are any indication, you'll never see the same series. You'll never look at it the same way again. You know. And before Robert introduces his theme for today's show. Let me also first take a moment to remind everyone that this is our last live show of the year. We'll be resuming live broadcasts after the holiday season, starting again on January 12th, which seems a long way off, but really isn't. 
remember, Christmas is only three days away, right? So it's closer than you think. Actually, I'm celebrating my Christmas today. Oh, is that right? Well, my wife was working throughout the weekend, so we pushed it ahead a bit. Oh, so you're working on Christmas Day. I guess so. Oh, my goodness. We've got a turkey dinner waiting for me. On the, oh, on the wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something. So, you know, it, I guess it would be very easy for someone like myself or Robert to be Scrooges about Christmas. So I guess we will. Is that what we're going to do today? <laughs> I'm going to tackle something. Yeah, that one of those cherished gems of mm-hmm. cinema that people turn to every Christmas time. It's a Wonderful Life, or is it? I don't think so. And I'll let you know about that. Are you done there, Bob? Yeah. Because I wanted to, to wish everybody here at the station a happy Hanukkah and a Merry Christmas, a happy Crimbo for the British amongst us, and a season's greeting. And, and uh, to all the staff here at CHRW 94.9 FM, which is owned and operated by the University Students' Council of the University of Western Ontario. Wish them a season's greetings as well. They're they're our financial backers. That's right. (laughs) Our primary controller and news and spoken word director, Ed Von Ederkast. Merry Christmas, Ed. Ashley Bushfield, Ed's predecessor and controller for many of our shows. Ashley Desjardins, music and promotions. Adulis Mokanen, program director and host of the Come Up Show, apparently a very popular hip-hop show here at the station. And, of course, Grant Steen, our station manager. Happy Hanukkah, Grant. So, Merry Christmas to the staff of of over 300 volunteers here at CHRW. I'd like to mention one other person in the group, and that would be Wayne and the gang down at the parking lot. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'll tell you, if it hadn't been for them, I'd have been late for a number of these shows. Wayne and Bridget. Yes. And so, uh, a Merry Christmas to all of them as well. Yes, indeed. So, let's take on and trash... It's a wonderful life. Trash? Now, gonna trash? trash I'm going to trash. I'm going to tear it apart. You're going to say it's a terrible life or what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say it's not so wonderful, at least not for Jimmy Stewart. But uh, you just handed me, Bob, a news clipping from, uh, what is this, London Free Press, December 20th. And you hadn't seen it before. You just handed it yeah. to me, and, I, and I'm so upset because it looks like somebody stole my thunder in the Free Press. And I, and I swear to my listeners that I have not seen this article. It's called Classic Films Beginning Not So Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and this guy, Michael uh, Rechschaffen, from Hollywood South, trashes It's a Wonderful Life as well. And deservedly so. But I don't think he's going to do it in exactly the same way that I am. It's a perennial favorite. It's got to be uh, Frank Capra's Wonderful Life. His, in his own words, best movie. Stars James Stewart and Donna Reed. What apparently makes this a classic is its underlying theme that one's life, however ordinary, influences many others like the ripples in a pond. It's also a theme of friendship. Now, while this might be a truism... It does not, in my mind, make this a great film. In fact, I would describe It's a Wonderful Life as homage to the dominant philosophy of our time, that of altruism, and certainly not a great piece of cinema for that reason. For those who have not seen the movie, and even for those who may have, I will recap the salient points as I see them. Here we go. George Bailey is the protagonist, played by James Stewart, of course, Jimmy Stewart, an ambitious young man with dreams of seeing the world, going to college, and becoming an industrial engineer or an an architect. He's planned out his whole life and can hardly wait for the day to leave his crummy backwater town of Bedford Falls. He actually calls it crummy. (laughs) (laughs) George's personal flaw, instilled in him by his father who, by everyone's account, is a poor businessman as the chief executive of Bailey Building and Loan. 
Now, the flaws are both a sense of duty to others in his community and a personal hatred for the successful banker, Mr. Potter. Mr. Potter mm. has a hard nose for business with little empathy for others. And it's this lack of altruism that riles the Baileys to the point where their hatred of Potter has made for very poor business decisions, giving loans to people the bank declines, which leaves them in almost a perpetual state of near bankruptcy. Well, like the American economy. <laughs> no, yeah, there are a lot of parallels here. <laughs> there sure are. George's personal dreams are put on hold when his father dies and he ties up father's dealings with the building and loan. Potter, a member of the board, makes a motion to dissolve the company. A company, by the way, which has always been a thorn in his side because he uh, covets it. But George's hatred for Potter gets the better of him, and he persuades the board to keep the building and loan going. They do so with the condition that George runs it. This, by the way, this decision was made just as he's about to run off and go to college. Mm. Right? George's sense of duty to the downtrodden of the community and his personal hatred for Potter convince him to sacrifice, and I mean that in the strictest definition of the term, his lifelong dreams and run the building and loan. He marries Mary, hmm. played by Donna Reed. They have four kids, and throughout the years, the embittered man is constantly regretting his decision not to fulfill his personal dreams. Along comes the Great Depression, and the company narrowly ex escapes bankruptcy. Potter tries to give George a way to escape his failing business by offering him a job at $20,000 a year. Now, remember, uh, George is making 45 bucks a week yeah. <laughs> as the head of this building loan. And Potter says, I'll employ you for three years. Come work for me. I'll give you twenty grand a year. That must have been a fortune. And it solved many of George's problems. But his personal hatred again for Potter, the banker, makes him refuse the offer with an onslaught of vitriolic, vulgar epithets hurled at his nemesis. I wonder then if he's, if he's actually being... I know, you, I know you distinguish between altruism and the spirit of giving, but is he actually being motivated by altruism or is he motivated by his hatred? <laughs> uh, there's, a, you know. there's a disgust for Potter and his type, uh, a successful businessman, a person without empathy or sympathy for others. Um, I, I examined the Potter character when I when I looked at the movie, and I saw it twice over the last week just to get all the details out of it. And Potter only does one thing which is morally reprehensible. And uh, I'll get to that a little okay. later on. But other than that, he's just a businessman. And the one thing that he does is only after the Baileys have uh, vilified him. So as a successful businessman, he's, he's reviled by George Bailey for that reason hatred of the good for being good hatred kind of, of the good for yeah. being the good yeah now his deep-seated hatred and anger finally boils over when his absent-minded uncle loses the company's deposits of $8,000 by the way this is the reprehensible thing that Mr. Potter did uh, the uncle left the money in a newspaper which he gave to Mr. Potter and didn't realize it and Potter kept the money that was his immorality right there. He kept the money and didn't tell anybody that he had it, hoping that the, the uh, building and loan would fail. Now, with Mr. Potter and the bank examiner breathing down George's neck, he finally loses it. He roughs up his uncle physically, lifts him off the ground and shakes him, calls him an old fool, trashes his living room, frightens and yells at his wife and kids, tells off one of his child's teachers, gets drunk, drives his car while drunk into a tree. 
So far, it's a great life, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think the word's wonderful. Oh, <laughs> the drunken George Bailey, unsatisfied with his not-so-wonderful life, and realizing that his life insurance policy will save the company, prepares to commit suicide. He actually starts to climb over the railings of a bridge looking over a river. Now, so far, I've described the first hour and 50 minutes of this two-hour and 10-minute movie. Up until this point, George Bailey has undoubtedly hated his life. It's been one disappointment after the other. He never wanted to get married, and yet he did. He never wanted anything to do with his father's company, and yet he now runs it. He never wanted to live in Bedford Falls, and he's never left it. None of his dreams have been fulfilled, let alone attempted. It's not been a wonderful life for George Bailey. If you ask any who have seen the film, this first part is almost all forgotten. People don't remember this whole setup, which is basically 90% of the movie. The last 20 minutes are what seem to matter most to most viewers. Mm. By the way, I never asked you, Bob, have you seen the movie? Long time ago. Yeah. I'm only vaguely remembering some of the scenes. I remember him standing on a bridge thinking about going over. That's the point uh, where I'm saying oh, that people start that, to remember where, everything. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, of course, that's a dramatic point in a person's life. Uh -huh. You know, you, you want is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? Sure. Is this the one where a guardian angel showed up or something? That's, that's uh, what happens next. George's okay. guardian angel Clarence saves George from committing suicide in the most insightful way. Knowing of George's sense of duty to others, Clarence throws himself into the river first thereby forcing George to save him, and thus himself. <laughs> Very clever. So even George's desire to kill himself has been sacrificed for the sake of a perfect stranger. <laughs> he can't even kill himself, right? <laughs> oh, I'm going to kill myself, but let me save this guy first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, bizarre. So while drying off from his dip in the river, George tells Clarence that he wishes he was never born. That's how wonderful he thinks his life is. Clarence grants his wish and shows George a Bedford Falls where he had never been born. It is a town now called Potterville, with nightclubs and gambling halls. Ooh, you know, <laughs> as if they're evil, you know. His wife, Mary, becomes a spinster librarian. Sorry to all the spinster librarians out there. His taxi driver <laughs> still lives in Potter's slums, and the building and loan has closed down. George becomes unhinged. He tries to drink away his problem in a bar once called Martinis, now it's called Nick's. Um, he gets thrown out of the bar with Clarence. He breaks into the house, which was supposed to be his home. He punches a cop and gets shot at. In utter despair, he returns to the river where he was going to commit suicide and prays to God to return him to his real life. He gets his wish, and he's immediately surrounded by all his friends who bail him out of his financial troubles. Lucky him. The guardian angel leaves him a note saying... No man is a failure who has friends. A nice sentiment, to be sure. That's the summation of the movie, basically, in a nutshell. And everybody seems to remember those last 10, 15 minutes, mm -hmm. him running through the town looking at all the uh, degradation and all of his friends all of a sudden giving him all this money to bail him out of the, uh, the situation that he's in. The character of George Bailey is today's everyman. He believes his highest virtue is not himself, but in helping others, while at the same time denigrating and hating the successful among us who do not share his ethics of self-sacrifice. The end result of his philosophy is a life not worth living, a life of regret, disappointment, frustration, guilt, and a mounting hatred for success. At one point in the story, 
George is deliriously overjoyed that he's just given away his life savings of two thousand dollars, which was go, to, which was supposed to go to his honeymoon. He gives it to the community and his um, account holders. He's overjoyed at that. <laughs> It is fitting, if not timely, that the villain in the story is Mr. Potter, the banker, paralleling today's Occupy Wall Street altruists who call for an end to capitalism, destruction of the rich, and the imprisonment of bankers. Ayn Rand described the moral code of altruism thusly, quote, The basic principle of altruism is that man has no right to exist for his own sake, that service to others is the only justification of his existence and that self-sacrifice is the highest moral duty, virtue, and value." Unquote. This describes the motives of George Bailey perfectly. He was the ideal altruist. I'll paraphrase Rand here when I say that, one, George Bailey lacks self-esteem, since his first concern is the realm of values, in the realm of values, rather, is not how to live his life, but how to sacrifice it. Two, he lacks respect for others since he regards mankind as a herd of doomed beggars crying for someone's help. And here he comes to the rescue all the time. Three. Yes, an, that's interesting that, that, that as an altruist, he has discussed a certain level of disgust for the people who he's helping. It's, that's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. Um, he thinks that the world is a bunch of doomed beggars and him being able to help, mm. he does. And lastly, he has a nightmare view of existence, since he believes that men are trapped in a malevolent universe where disasters are the constant and primary concern of their lives. And then you have the bank failures. You have people not being able to pay their mortgages, so he has to help, you know. The movie is reminiscent of another Christmas favorite, Scrooge, based on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. You know, by the way, I always thought that movie was called A Christmas Carol. It's called Scrooge. Did you know that? No, it's with called, Alistair Sim. Was that one called Scrooge? That one is actually called Scrooge. I know the one with George C. Scott is called A Christmas Carol. Yeah, okay. Yeah, And I called it Scrooge, I remember, incorrectly for a couple of times, and then I went back and looked, and it was called A Christmas Carol. Right. But the and one so with Alistair say, Sim is called Scrooge, because I actually watched it the other day, right? and I looked at the title. It said Scrooge, based on A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Yeah. A little bit of trivia. Based on A Christmas Carol. Yes. Oh, I yeah, see. Yeah. Okay. And that word played prominently on the mm -hmm. screen, so people probably thought it was a Christmas Carol. At least I did. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe nobody else did. Anyway, Scrooge, guess what? He's a banker or a money lender. It's never really explicitly talked about in the, in, the, in the show or the book. The casting of a successful, rich corporate executive as heartless, selfish, unsympathetic villains has become commonplace in popular literature and film. Have you heard about the latest Disney film, The Muppets? No. It has as its antagonist an oil magnate. His name, Tex Richman. Oh, man. <laughs> that about says it all right there. Tex Richman as the enemy. The real villain in It's a Wonderful Life is not well, he owns Mr. Walt Potter. Disney, doesn't he? <laughs> Richman. I wonder if Michael Moore is working mm -hmm. for Disney now. I don't know. The real villain in Wonderful Life is not Mr. Potter, it's George Bailey, a man who lives for others, forsaking his own selfish desires, plans, and hopes. A man of duty to the community, a man of altruism and sacrifice. These are the attributes of a man who finds his own life distasteful, so much so that suicide is his only escape. Allow me to take some license to propose an alternative to Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. Let's suppose we look at George's life as if he followed his dreams 
and left to explore the world and go to college and build bridges and airports, what would have happened? Could he have impacted as many lives as he did as the chief executive officer of Bailey's Building and Loan? You know, we covered a similar topic back in June, Bob, uh, show number 205, where we talked about Frederick Bastiat's piece written in 1850 called The Broken Window, or That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Unseen. Unseen, yeah. Don't just see what happens if George Bailey stays in Bedford Falls, but see what would he have done or accomplished if he had followed his dreams. There's two lives here, two choices. I suspect he would have influenced more lives in his travels, his adventures, his education and vocation as an architect or industrial engineer than as a lowly officer of a loan company in the dead-end town of Bedford Falls. But that's not the point. It's not as, uh, it's not as important how many lives you affect. What's important is how you live your own life, whether or not you follow your dreams or desires. You have but one life to live. Cultivate friends, of course but not at the expense of fulfilling your own dreams and following your own path. I don't know if that would have made a, a good movie, <laughs> you know, a better movie than to have Clarence show us an alternative world where George lived his life with his own self as the standard of his morality, but it certainly would have been a more honest treatment of the evil and moral destructive philosophy of altruism and a much more uplifting film to view, whether at Christmas time or at any other time of the year. So with that, I'm going to just say to all those program directors out there who continue to show this uh, <laughs> disgusting movie, It's a Wonderful Life, which uh, shows a man who sacrifices his own life for that of others, a despicable man who shouts at his children, trashes his living room, punches cops in the face, drunk, drives drunk. <laughs> you know, that's a virtuous movie. I say there's a lot more movies out there, a lot more uplifting movies that you can show at Christmas time to express a sense of joy for life, express a sense of uh, life itself at this uh, time of the year. So what do you think, Bob? Do you think maybe we should can, put it in the can? It's a know. Wonderful Life. You didn't want to play it, eh? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's up to you. Anyway, let's hear a couple of clips from the movie itself. All right, this one uh, is uh, two clips, starting with uh, George talking about his dreams and finally ending up with uh, George's sense of duty to the community. So we'll be back right after this. You know, George, I wish we could send Harry to college with you. Your mother and I talked it over half the night. Mm. We have that all figured out. See, Harry will take my job in the building alone, work there for four years, and then he'll go. Mm. Pretty young for that job. Oh, no younger than I was. I suppose you've decided what you want to do when you get out of college. Oh, well, you know what I've always talked about. Build things, design new buildings, plan modern cities. Mm. All that stuff I've been talking about. Still after that first million before you're 30, huh? No, I'll sell for half that in cash. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's just a hope, but... Uh, you wouldn't consider coming back to the building alone, would you? I know it's soon to talk about it. No, not Pop. I... I couldn't. I... Uh... I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. The... No, I'm, I'm sorry, Pop. I didn't mean that. I, but I, it, it's this business of nickels and dimes and spending all your life trying to figure out how to save three cents and like the pipe. I go crazy. I, I want to do something big and something important. You know, George, I feel that in a small way we're doing something important. It's satisfying a fundamental urge. It's deep in the race for a man to want his own roof and walls and fireplace. We're helping him get those things in our shabby little office. I know, Pop. I, I... 
know that. I, I, I wish I felt that uh, I, I've been hoarding pennies like a miser here in order to... Most of my friends have already finished college. I, I just feel like if I didn't get away, I'd bust. Peter Bailey was not a businessman. That's what killed him. Oh, I don't mean any disrespect to him, God rest his soul. He was a man of high ideals, so-called. But ideals without common sense can ruin this town. <laughs> now, you take this loan here, the Ernie Bishop. You know, that fellow that sits around all day on his brains in his taxi, you know. I happen to know the bank turned down this loan. But he comes here... And we're building him a house worth $5,000. Why? Well, I handled that, Mr. Potter. You have all the papers there, his salary, insurance. I can personally vouch for his character. Friend of yours? Yes, sir. Uh, you see, if you shoot pool with some employee here, you can come and borrow money. <laughs> what does that get us? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible ideas. Now, I say... Just a minute, just, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Potter. Just a minute. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny ante building alone, I'll never know, but... Neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Well, here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they... What did you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait? Wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they... Do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I, you're, the, you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on. Sentimental hogwash. <laughs> My sentiment exactly, Mr. Potter. Sentimental hogwash. And you are the better man over Mr. Bailey. It's for funny, Ed made an interesting comment to us over the headsets during that. He says, sounds like a loser to me, and he's never seen the movie. <laughs> <laughs> he is a loser, and I, I, I don't know why they play this movie, except maybe for those last few minutes where you get the sense of friendship, people coming to his aid. But that's about it. The whole movie yeah, is Yeah, that's always out. a good feel. I mean, you know, you can't avoid that. Friendship is always fun. 
Well, it is, and I think that's what that's why people only remember the last few minutes of the movie. And and when you tell them about the whole setup, they they don't remember all that stuff. The fact that Mr. Bailey is really a reprehensible man. And anyway, uh, what we're at the bottom of the hour, and we actually have some more clips now. One uh, is going to sum up this uh, "It's a Wonderful Life," and it's going to be a clip from Ayn Rand, who appeared on the Tom Snyder uh, Tom Snyder Show, and she's going to be talking about. Back in 1979. 79, mm -hmm. yes. She's going to be talking about the, the, the theme that runs through It's a Wonderful Life, but she's not, of course, going to talk about that directly. She's going to talk about altruism. And then after we come back from the bottom of the hour, Bob, you're going to take it away. You're going to get very uh, silly. You're going to get very get silly. Some, some silliness. You're going to get into some, uh, what do we call, limericks, with a bit of history, though. Uh, it, was, it was interesting to hear some of the background of the limerick and how it blossomed into what it is. So... The last half of the show, we'll be doing that, and we'll be returning. Are you all done, Robert? All done, okay. Bob. Let's listen to Ayn Rand. Yeah, we'll be back after this. Let me bring it down from Kant a little bit to a bromide that I had drummed into me as a child, and maybe you've heard it. Happiness comes from making other people happy. Oh, yes, I heard it. <laughs> Who hasn't heard it? And that's the trouble. Let's aim at the day when people will not hear it anymore. Because it isn't true, it isn't justifiable, and the first question you would have to ask is, why? Why is it good to want others to be happy, but not yourself? And I suppose you will be told that, well, but they will work for your happiness, and not their own. Well, it's like an exchange of Christmas presents that neither party wants, but that you have to exchange presents, and you're not allowed morally to do something for yourself. Whereas what I say... You can make others happy when and if those others mean something to you selfishly. If you love them, then you want to make them happy. Fine. If you don't love them, that's not a moral crime. You don't have to love everybody. You cannot love everybody because it's a meaningless expression. You can love only those whom you value. And if they contribute to your happiness, you contribute to theirs. That's fine. But each one of you has to be selfish about it. Supposing somebody were in love with you and said, Can I love you because you're so bad, so I sacrifice myself and I'm going to love you. Would you accept that or no, would you say it's the most... No, sir, I wouldn't either. That's the most insulting thing anyone could have said to you. And yet that's what altruism would demand. And there is a great Russian writer who tried to practice it, Dostoevsky who did marry a poor, uh, stupid little uh, seamstress who, whom he didn't love at all, out of the desire to make her happy. See, the end of it was she committed suicide. Now that is an altruist practice. That's what altruism leads to. getting very strange reports from all decks. Such as? Such as the ship's training division ordering all officers to attend a lecture on metaphysics. Metaphysics? Confirm, sir. And there was a rather peculiar limerick being delivered by someone in the shuttlecraft bay. I am not sure I understand it. There was a young lady from Venus whose body was shaped like a... Captain to security, come in! Say something wrong? 
I don't understand their humor either. <laughs> I wonder if we understand our humor sometimes. You know, I'm a terrible teller of jokes, really, Robert. And, uh, you know, and when it comes to remembering jokes, even a good joke, I've got the memory of a housefly, I kid you not. <laughs> you can tell me a joke as many times as you want, but within about, oh, two seconds, I'll be butting my head against the pane of glass again when it comes to trying to retell that joke. I don't know why. And, uh, same way. Are you? Yeah, can't remember a joke to save my life. Yeah, I don't know what that is, and yet I can remember all sorts of other things because I think a joke has a lot to do with the timing and the often the way it's said, not just what is said. I think with limericks, though, which is what we'll be looking at now, is it's more what is said, although a good limerick teller can... Or what uh, is implied. Or, or what's implied, yes. And, of course, there are uh, all kinds of humor that transcend the teller and can be retold and delivered in more entertaining ways by those so predisposed, and that's the limerick. I think there's been a big change in the history of the limerick, which I didn't know about till I started looking into it, relatively recently, which means in the last 30, 35 years or so. Now, how I got into this was I, f I found this old book at City Lights Bookshop like years ago, and it was printed in 1980, and it was called The New Limerick, and very thick book over 2,750 unpublished examples of limericks, American and British with some German. And uh, I've excerpted certain selections from that book, and it's edited by someone named G. Legman, who seems to, whose name seems to suggest anonymity, which is a theme in limericks I have discovered. Uh, but he read, wrote an interesting preface to the book, and uh, I just thought I'd pull some of that information out before we got started. And he asked the following question. He says, why are limericks written at all and in such large numbers, and why are they so popular, especially among the more or less educated classes in the English-speaking world? Obviously, limericks are a form of erotic folklore and folk poetry, and as such are proliferated and exchanged specifically for, for their bawdry on a shock basis. The educated class that so loves limericks is much less given to any form of erotic folklore except jokes and graffiti privately, and a rather small repertoire of the body songs and ballads left over from college and army days, which are mostly the prerogative of the, quote, uneducated classes that ignore limericks. limericks. But the wit and even the bawdry of limericks are really only the sauce or spice. There are even a few aberrant souls, not many, who actually enjoy clean limericks as much as the body ones. Or, so they say. <laughs> now, I would, I would fall into that category, because I discovered something going through this book. The book's filthy, by the way. <laughs> I couldn't possibly read it on the air. But, um, you know, I happen to think that, quote-unquote, cleaner limericks, which are not so innocent and clean as you might suggest, but they're actually funnier, and I don't think it has to do so much with aberrants, but I'll get into that later as we approach the limericks themselves. But the writer continues, he says, At bottom, I believe it is the limerick form itself which carries the secret of its enormous popularity for nearly two centuries. Not the rhythm, not the rhyme, clever and unexpected as these may be, but simply the formal insistence upon a personal or geographical name featured in the opening line. If you think about it, that's how they all start. Yeah. And then rhymed as amusingly or as outrageously as possible and never used again. The darkest secret of the body limerick is this. Limericks are the tragi-comic autobiographies of those who write and recite them. 
They are the erotic fantasies and the lightly glossed sexual secrets of their authors and of those who enjoy reading or hearing them. The college professors, lawyers, actors, advertising men, army officers, journalists, computer salesmen, topographers, engineers, sci-fi fans, fraternity brothers, and Mensa members who so carefully do not appear in these self-mocking little thumbnail autobiographies. Stripping some pitiful little human tragedy naked in five lines under the paper-thin disguise of exaggerated verbal humor and rhyme. Boy, that was a statement there, eh? (laughs) Autobiographies are carefully pegged instead to the other fellow's name. Only the rare limerick poet is ever so frank as to call himself a pervert. (laughs) It's more fun to use a listener's name instead. And it has been asked, why are there no limericks in any other language than English? I wouldn't have asked it. I wouldn't have thought about it, but I guess that's the case. I never realized it. Yeah. Actually, he says, this is not quite so to begin with. He says, body and semi-body limericks Im- <coughs> imitated from the English language forms today fairly are, are fairly common in both Germany and especially in Holland and Dutch-speaking Belgium. Well, we all know about those Belgians. <laughs> Where the milder kind have often been printed in the newspapers there, at least in the ni- since the 1940s. Despite the presumed new freedom since the late 60s, at least as to sex, almost all the collectors and all but three of the original Limerick poets have urgently insisted that their true names not be published. Mm. <laughs> so, all anonymous. One wonders, one wonders sometimes why certain Limerick fanciers so enthusiastically write, recite, and circulate the rhymes of which, in the end, they are so ashamed. <laughs> Limericks have appeared since the 1950s, especially in the men's magazines industry and purportedly in naughty gift books. Hey, there's an idea for a Christmas present, eh? There's been a particularly significant flowering of science fiction satires in limerick form, which is the only new theme to be added to the limerick in over a century. They were first seen in a mimeograph pamphlet called Salacious Science Limericks, issued privately for science fiction fans back in 1952. But the historian should observe here that the earlier science fiction limericks have been attributed to the murder mystery writer, the late Anthony Boucher, and dated around 1945. So, that's what he had to say in some of his introduction about the limerick and the background of it. And we have a selection of limerotic topics, ranging from sex itself to politics, and of course to the newest category of the limerick, science fiction and fantasy. Which brings me back to that little limerick I started the show off with, which says the limerick is callous and crude. Its morals distressingly lewd. It's not worth the reading by persons of breeding. It's designed for us vulgar and rude. I agree that this pretty much describes the limerick and the nature of the limerick, but, you know, I was looking at those words and I looked them up in the dictionary and I found, why do I like certain limericks more than others? Even though I might find the crude ones funnier, you know, funny in some cases. But, to me, the best limericks are, I discovered, the lewd ones and the vulgar ones, and not the crude ones and the rude ones, <laughs> okay? The difference is this. Lewd just refers to lustful. There's a sexual theme to it somewhere, and I figure that's part of it. Not all of them. Not all of them are like that. And vulgar, contrary to what a lot of people think, really means lacking in refinement and good taste and mainly characteristic of the people at large, as distinguished from their privileged or educated classes. In other words, popular and common. That's what they mean by vulgar. So if you have vulgar taste, you're, you're a commoner. So I guess that puts me in the commoner <laughs> category in some places. And, of course, they appeal to the masses. Um, rude is a bit different. Rude is being offensively blunt or uncivil and crude. The two words almost go hand in hand. Crude is more of a lack of skill or knowledge, roughly made, lacking tact. 
And I think, yeah, there's crude of everything, if you want to think about it. But there are skillful people who can take any art form and turn it into something better than what it might otherwise be. And, uh, you know, basically by crude and rude, I would refer to using those words which are essentially frowned upon in polite discourse. So to me, it's the challenge of getting another, the otherwise taboo or very uncomfortable subject out in the open without being crude or rude. That's part of the humor, part of the talent. And you can see that, you know, that's something that's maybe missing in some of entertainment today. I remember uh, an old episode of I Love Lucy I watched once. Remember, I Love Lucy aired live, and it was aired during a time when sex was not discussed. Even married couples couldn't be seen sharing the same bed, right? So here's this meeting, the girls' club meeting of some sort, where Lucy, Ethel, and their women's clubs are sitting around talking about their spouses, right? They're all comparing each other's husbands and bragging about which one can accomplish the most and be the most efficient. Then Ethel turns to Lucy and says, You know, Fred's so good at everything, he can finish and start anything in under a minute. (laughs) <laughs> exactly there's this, there's this uncomfortable few seconds of silence right the audience is laughing and they just carry on as if nothing was said right and I'm thinking oh my goodness strike one against the censor and that's what made it funny and yet on its own it wasn't really that ha ha you funny, know what makes right? it funny is the mind of the listener they, maybe they fill in the gap yeah that's, it doesn't that, have to be said that's right goes without saying. You so, already think it. <laughs> exactly. So let's take our plunge right into the murky world of the limerick. Take it away, Ed. <laughs> Here's to friendship, ripe and long. Here's to voices raised in song. Here's to a long and thirsty night. Here's to the stuff that makes it right. I got one for you, sir. Well, this is not exactly a toast. Ah, we'll waive the formalities, Lieutenant. Out with it. There once was an old man from Lyme who married three wives at a time. When asked why a third, he replied, one's absurd and two of them, sir, is a crime. <laughs> I accept that as a challenge, Lieutenant. Limericks at 20 paces. Ready, aim, fire. Limerick is furtive and mean. He must keep her in close quarantine, or she sneaks to the slums and promptly becomes disorderly, drunk, and obscene. (laughs) That's a terrific limerick. Try this one, sir. A rare old bird is the pelican. His bill holds more than his belican. He can take in his beak enough food for a week. I'm damned if I know how to helicat. As I was drinking gin and water, and me being Corporal Riley, who should come in but the landlord's daughter? And she took my heart entirely. (laughs) Said Aristotle unto Plato, have another sweet potato. Said Plato unto Aristotle, thank you, I prefer the bottle. I don't know how you do it, sir. You never seem to run out. And I guess he must have had a copy of that book. You'd never run out if you had thousands and thousands of them. And now we know why Plato was so disconnected from reality. He was drinking alcohol while Aristotle was eating sweet potatoes. <laughs> Who would have known, eh? <laughs> so here's some some of the more humorous ones and interesting ones I found just about all kinds of subjects, and they're all over the place. The first couple, well, might as well get right into it. 
you know, it's about sex, you know. So is this about the lady from Nantucket? No. Okay. No. Concerning them bees and the flowers in the fields and the gardens and bowers, you'll note at a glance that their sexless romance has little resemblance to ours. Okay. <laughs> See, sex is how you look at it. And here's someone else who looks at it a little differently. Said a prudish young person named Reed, The gross way that we humans breed, viewed coldly, looks frightful. Though I'm told it's delightful. So if you don't mind, let's proceed. <laughs> <laughs> Next this one answers the question, it's underwear? <laughs> An immigrant Scot, fresh from Glasgow, was asked if he wore aught below. With a tilt to his kilt, he, pro- he replied, If thou wilt, thou mayst feel for thyself, then thou'lt know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's one for us, Robert. This is about rethinking suburban sprawl, okay? Municipal politics. Big cities are reeking with grief, a haven for criminal and thief, and designed in a way so that half of us pay to maintain all the rest on relief. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Mathematics. Remember we talked about chess in one of our topics with the binary complexities of the game? Well, those binary complexities apparently go a little further than we thought because a binary mathematician had the curious erotic ambition to know what to do with the powers of two when the two are in the proper position. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, said a lustful old man from Montclair as he leered at a girl's derriere. Though touching's unlawful, the mental strain's awful. Can they put me in jail if I stare? <laughs> yes, they <laughs> yes, can. Yes, they can. I was going to say, <laughs> Human Rights Commission. And it's happened, and we've co- we covered it, in fact. And uh, that's why they call it Canada. They can do it here. This one's on adultery, I guess. This is number 2442, in case you want to have a reference point. H. Spencer Ashby, oil seller, was a rather love-crazy old feller. He hated his wife, led a wild secret life, which today has become a bestseller. I <laughs> <laughs> hmm, wonder if this one's about backyard chickens. No, it's not, no. There was a young man from New York whose morals were lighter than cork. Young chickens, said he, have no terrors for me. The bird that I fear is the stork. <laughs> <laughs> and this one's... Sedidopus rex, growing red. I wish all head shrinkers were dead. They make such a bother because I hate father. Perhaps I'll love mother instead. (laughs) Amazing what they say. You could get a complex or something if you did that. Uh, Illusions and self-delusions. This is an interesting one. He swears that the girls can't resist him. Keeps a list of of the ones who have kissed him. The amount's not too hot, but it looks like a lot because he keeps it in the binary system. See all those zeros and ones and zeros and ones? You'd have to have eight of them before you really had one. <laughs> Joke's no good if you have yeah, to explain to Bob. Oh, hey. <laughs> I think that fellow should join up with the binary ma- mathematician we heard about earlier. And uh, this fellow must have been an unwanted child. A fellow with stars Capricorn only wished he'd never been born. And he wouldn't have been if the druggist had seen that the end of the rubber was torn. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Now, from Capricorn to Scorpio, early signs, early signs. A poet by birthright, a Scorpio, was trying to rhyme the word Scorpio. He fretted and fried till in torment he died. There is no rhyme for Scorpio. Oh, that's... (laughs) That's terrible. And I was thinking, well, wait a minute, I disagree. I think there's a way to handle this, and I did some of my own limerick response. I actually think I could have saved this poor fellow's life. He just should have approached the problem in different ways. Think outside the box, if you will. About that limerick on Scorpio, 
it's lack of a rhyme I'll now torpedo. The secret, you see, is to think logically about rhymes, not exact, but just so, so, so. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, torpedo, yes, Scorpio. There you go, see? Placing the emphasis on a different syllable (laughs) is just one solution. (laughs) I have another. About that limerick on Scorpio, my own logic of rhyme I'll now torpedo. The secret may be not to think logically, but to sing. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. La, ti, do. (laughs) (laughs) That's thinking outside the box, Robert. That's what I spend my time sitting around. Early signs. I'm a Taurus, yes, and it's all bull. Intelligence as the key to original thinking, said Amensis. Said Amensis knob with a sigh. Although my IQ is quite high, when it comes to real wit, I'm just not worth a twit. And I cannot determine the why. Perhaps that last line is the key to his problem, you think? Now, here's an example of what the, the limerick author suggested about the autobiographical nature of the limerick. Confession is good for the soul. I dream day and night of a hole. It's lined with red silk, and the doorknobs squirt milk. Do you think Dr. Freud should be told? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes a doorknob is just a doorknob, but in this case, I think he should give the good doctor a call. Truth is in the philosophy department, department, yes. There was a philosopher, Spencer, who never knew pleasure intenser than once when he saw Mr. George Bernard Shaw attempting to <clears throat> censor the censor. And this one's not so sexy. Hmm. There were once two young people of taste who were eunuchs right up to the waist. So they limited love to the regions above and so remained perfectly chaste. <laughs> You could say, oh, what a waste of a waste, but, you know. Uh. Or in other words, there's no greater sexual dysfunction than none. I don't know. And while we're on the subject of sex, or is it commerce, there was a young harlot named Trilling who went to the dentist for drilling. In a fit of depravity, he filled the wrong cavity, so each canceled the other one's billing. (laughs) (laughs) That's the barter system at work, Robert. You know, these are so close to puns. Uh, A lot of McGroners. Yeah. And a good way to avoid taxes, if you, if you know what I mean. And now here's the, the ones we've been waiting for, these science fiction ones. Uh, you know, this is gender neutral, not neutral. A creature once lived on an asteroid, a strangely desexed little bastroid. He might have been her, but you couldn't be sure. If he was a she, he'd have been castroid. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, when the race for the stars runs its course and we invade with a female task corps, task force, sorry, will our sterile embrace in cold outer space be called inter or just outer course? (laughs) (laughs) Think about it, it's happening here on Earth. I call it off course, but, or is it, of course, of course, dear, you know. A good reason to be opposed to global warming, this next one, Robert, in this case I can see the other side of the issue. This has to do with the planet Neptune. There is a season in Neptune's affairs where the lovers get frozen in pairs, though the sunshine's appealing towards perihelion. It's for winter, they all say their prayers. <laughs> oh, Flash Gordon, when looking for fun, poked Dale with his little space gun. Murmured she, I'm not shy, but quick, button your fly. In comics, that simply isn't done. <laughs> <laughs> his little space gun. Yeah, that's right. Oh, here's proof that artificial intelligence leads to artificial sex. A robot named Gamma-13 once seduced a computing machine, but his cold intromission caused nuclear fission. Who knows what the kids might have been? And this one is beyond interracial sex, where no one has gone before. 
An alien who had sex with a humanoid soon felt life in her abdominoid. But the pregnancy was not quite average because, in darkness, her belly was luminoid. Mind you of anything? That actually happened to Ensign Kim on Voyager, remember? Oh, of course, Bob. <laughs> he had yes, sex I'm with an alien. I was just thinking of that, right. <laughs> and his arm starts to glow. True love and all that, you know? And then, of course, there's Star Trek itself. The Enterprise ladies, so one hears, have chased Mr. Spock for many years. But his look of disdain has actually spared them great pain, for his <clears throat> wit is as sharp as his ears. Said crew girl, Angelica Bauer. I'm not even sure which one that is. The captain is withdrawn, cold and sour. Uhuru said, no, at night that's not so. He doesn't withdraw for an hour. Oh, good <laughs> lord. <laughs> oh, and of course there's Dr. McCoy. Dr. McCoy is a seducer galore. And of virgins, he has quite a score. He tells him, my dear, you're the final frontier, where no man has gone before. <laughs> oh, that's clever. <laughs> Isn't that cute? Yeah. And, oh, this is funny. Thank goodness it's Friday department. Each Friday, his engine's abort, but Scotty is never caught short. He fills his machines with Space Navy beans and farts the ship back into port. <laughs> <laughs> Impulse drive, now we know. <laughs> and, of course... Star Whoopi Trek. Goldberg. Whoopi yeah, Goldberg the, at the helm. <laughs> Star Trek was a pioneer of interracial television, you know, not only of interracial outer space. Though most of the crewmen are white, Uhuru has full equal rights. Her crewmates, you see, love democracy and the way that she fills out her tights. <laughs> That's funny. But uh, I think Data had it wrong earlier. Remember when he was talking about the young lady from Venus whose body was shaped like a... Yes. And the captain breaks in. <laughs> I'm still wondering what the, that shape might have been, but uh, in any case... I'll tell you after year. You will? You're going to tell me? <laughs> I'm not going to show you, I'll tell you. Okay. <laughs> oh, geez. What, what was that when I was looking at? Oh, yeah, I should be going here now. But the truth is, the Venetians do not kiss or pet, nor work themselves up in a sweat. As to sex, they get wed. Then all feeling goes dead. Hey, how like our Earth can you get? <laughs> you like that one? You're not laughing. Like I said, some yeah, of them yeah. are growers. <laughs> no, well, I'm not done yet. But with that, you know, I challenge our listeners to send us their favorite limericks, especially if they're original. And if you can make them about subjects that, you know... That what, metaphysics or epistemology? <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. That's what I've done here. And... Um, I just wanted to finish off with that. And uh, so just to, to close off here, I, I thought I'd write a few of my own just for the show. Oh, that'd be okay. interesting to hear. Okay. Just Right is the name of the show. It's brought to you on CHRW Radio. The two hosts rarely fight, though each argues he's right. But hey, what the hell do they know? <laughs> <laughs> Ed is giving me a funny look over there. Just Wrong is the theme of their shows. Their arguments simply don't flow. Wrong believers just fight with only a faith that they're right. Because they don't know. They don't know. Ooh. Now that's clever, isn't it? I like that one. And then finally, just right is the name of our show. And for this year, it's now time to go. We trust you'll return in the new year to learn about freedom, about life, and what's so. Excellent, Bob. You like that? I love that one. I thought they were pretty good, too. And I guess that's it for this year. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's true. So join us again next year, January 12th. Until then, Merry Christmas to all and to all a true right. Happy Crimbo. Color it into color, into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything.
this is from me and Ben. Merry Christmas. Oh, is this what I think it is? <laughs> Could be. It is! It's some heroin! Hooray! <laughs> You like heroin, so. Too right. Because we were saying, can we get him heroin? We got him heroin last year, but then Susie said, sod it. Let's just get him heroin. He won't mind. Well, you can never have too much heroin. That's what I'm saying. It's Christmas, isn't it? Uh, this is from us. Oh, I wonder what this is. Hope you like it. Yeah, we both know how much you like heroin, so we thought... Oh, it's a book of heroin anecdotes. Right. We thought a bit more interesting, you know, than just giving you heroin again. Yeah, yeah. But we got you some heroin to have while you're reading it. Ah, oh, you silly. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>